You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Paul Page. He is a graduate of the University of Tulsa, a veteran of the United States Army, a recipient of multiple Emmy Awards, and has a unique place in the history and tradition, not only of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but auto racing throughout the United States. Paul, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. It's going to be fun. Well, it's an honor to say the least. Uh, your voice is stop a, it. Stop your it. voice, <laughs> like Janie and Cowboy Bob and Sammy Terry, your voice is a big part of my childhood <laughs> growing up in Indianapolis. Uh, Paul is best known for serving as the play-by-play commentator for the Indianapolis 500 for a total of 27 years across radio and television. He has written a delightful and witty book, which I have read, and it is delightful and witty, to say the least. It is one of the best trips down memory lane I've ever encountered. And the book is titled, Hello, I'm Paul Page. It's race day in Indianapolis. So I want to make sure that we cover the book first because it's so terrific. Why now? What led you to writing this book? Well, once I did on television my last 500, which was 2004, I didn't have much to do. And so I started writing the book with the idea that my my career was essentially over and I ought to start it. And then ESPN put me on the NHRA drag racing series. So there's four years. I'm not writing a book. And then the Speedway asked me to come back and be the host play-by-play on the radio network. So now it's 2016 and I still have these chapters laying out all over the place. And a friend of mine, John Elrod, it's J.R. Elrod at the, in the title of the book, um, he, uh, he contacted me one day. We went over the Ratskeller, and he said, I want to write your book. And he's, he's just a really bright guy, a really nice guy, lawyer. Um, but he wants to be a writer. And now I think he is very definitely a writer. So when he got going, then we, now that's, again, that's several years ago. And so we just actually finished it in January, having convinced myself that, yeah, after doing the 100th race, I probably ought to walk away. So we did. 
I love how your book is structured because it's not as a history nerd, as is the Mr. Engineer Chris Spangle and a lot of the people we have on the podcast. You know, sometimes you get these books and you know each chapter is 64 pages and it's kind of tough yours is more like it's not necessarily a series of anecdotes but it's anecdotes plus stories plus facts plus memories and it's you can read 20 30 pages like in no time because of the way that it's structured was was that something that you did on purpose to make it easier to read um not necessarily to make it easier to read though i i think that comes in uh in a couple ways in the writing of just me telling stories. And then we took the tape and we put it down and said, all right, we'll write it this way. But the key factor in that is that it starts in 1960, which is my first race. And I'm a 15-year-old kid. The last really good history of the Indy 500 it's a thing called their 500 Miles to Go, and it was written by Al Blemker, who was a public relations director at the Speedway. So that one ended in 59. Mm. And I decided, let's pick it up in 60 and kind of carry the history through and then hopefully tell some good and fun stories that connects to that history and uh, hopefully illuminate those people because everybody in that book is special. You, know, you could write chapters about each of them. And I like how in your book, You'll tell a story and then you'll then you'll tell a story about racing or a race or a driver. And then you immediately come back like to the next year's race. You'll tell a story about 1963. And then the next part is a nice little section about the 64 race, yeah. which I want to ask you about specifically because you say in the book that Eddie Sachs was your hero. He was. And um, did writing the book cause you to like laugh to yourself like, oh, my God, I forgot about that or, oh, shoot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it it did, and we were we were we had to limit the pages. You know, the more pages you write, the more it costs to to put the book out. So, um, having worked that direction, we overwrote it to start with, and I'm checking off all these things that are not in it, that are other stories, and then others that as you're you're writing one, you think, oh, you remember this happened on that Saturday kind of thing, and so there's. Probably another whole book of anecdotes there somewhere. Were there things that you purposely didn't include or at the last second were like, eh, I probably shouldn't divulge or not divulge, but like that could be embarrassing to X, Y, or Z. I was really careful about that. There is one section, less than a chapter, that I removed because of that very thing. I didn't want it to be embarrassing, and it wasn't particularly relevant to what we were talking about. But that's the only one. I mean, there's some of them that we th we thought a little bit about. Um, and the drive, too, is to be tasteful, and you're covering fatalities. So sure. you got to be awfully careful about how you deal with that. You get one of the things that comes through the book, and it's something that I've asked other people who related to the Speedway, whom I've interviewed, whether it's Johnny Rutherford or Alan Jr., Donald Davidson, Jim Voiles, all friends of yours, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's in as opposed to other sports, is it more difficult for you to get close to drivers because you are close to so many of them, given what can happen on any given moment? Um, no. I know a lot of people do feel that way. My son, who is a, a, a performance engineer for Andretti, 
feels absolutely that way. He will not get close to a driver uh, because he was an engineer on Dan Weldon's car. So, uh, but I, it's a community, it's a family. And when I started, I just was in the family and that just continued on. Nothing ever drove me away. A couple of things made me think twice about what was going on. And like behind the scenes, I might make a safety suggestion or, or something. Greg Moore's death out at, uh, out at uh, Fontana Speedway, um, the, they had a just terrible situation with how the barrier system was designed, and I think that that was part of the problem. So, yeah, did I have I had a lot of conversations with people, and, and safety is kind of a big thing with me. I know I'm a pest to a lot of the officials, but uh, they they they're polite, so it works. <laughs> Another theme of the book is kind of the twin drives of your life no mm-hmm. pun intended, perhaps, and that is racing and radio and how they intersected. Talk to us, please, about your love of radio. Well, I, I started doing radio in high school, and at the time, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. I just knew that I liked it, and I also enjoyed the technical side as much as the performance side. I had, as a kid in my basement, built up a big radio console and um, ran a wire to my best friend next door, <laughs> and I'd sit there in the evening and play the same 10 records for him. Um, so I, I like both aspects, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I could be a disc jockey. And I then went to this senior high school uh, deal that they had at Waukegan at WKRS Radio up there, and it was for students, and it was teaching us more how to be journalists. And so I just totally suckered into that. Now, when I ended up in Indianapolis, I had to, uh, I had to disc jockey, but uh, my my successes in that are non-existent. I did, I worked at WAIV, the old fine arts station, uh, where I did a, a jazz program called Jazz Flight Eight Hundred Five. Some rem- remnants of that still exist in the city. And then I went to a station that uh, uh, hired me, and 20 days later announced that they were going automation. So, <laughs> so finally, I end up walking into WIBC, and uh, they, Fred Heckman there, the news director, hired me. It seems quaint, almost, radio does these days, compared to how powerful it was. Is that something that you are a little bit wistful about oh, how yeah. much radio has changed. I mean, WIBC just announced they're, they're not there anymore. They're, they're gone. That frequency is gone. Um, yeah, I, I'm sad one that it's, it just doesn't have its power, but that was inevitable. But I am sad that in that same process, the nature of radio changed so many ways and we don't have any more the really clever disc jockey, uh, like a Chuck Riley. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got really good people working now, and they're, they're good, they're funny, but um, like Chuck had this amazing class to him. And, uh, you know, there are a number of them like that that uh, you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't like today, I guess would be the real answer, but uh, I like being part of it. You were still in radio when WKRP 
in mm-hmm. Cincinnati yeah. was on television. Yeah. Did that hit home for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Les Nessman was Fred Heckman. Uh, <laughs> and um, his description of the uh, turkeys falling from the sky, which, of course, was the exact words that were used for the Hindenburg, um, that that reminded me of a lot of people in our building and things that we did. I had once, uh, well, when uh, President Nixon was going to resign, I was the... Uh, I was in the news department at WIBC and working with Lou Palmer and, and the other guys. And Fred, great guy, terrific news director. But when something big hit, he's like wandering all over the newsroom with paper in his hand. <laughs> so, and Lou and I look at each other and we say, you know, this, I don't know what we're going to do about it, but he's going to be in the way. So I think it all over and I make a few arrangements and then I walk into his office and I shut the door and I looked at him very seriously. Shutting the door was a substantial move alone. And I said, Fred, you're the news director of one of the most important and prestigious radio stations in the country. Your place is in Washington. I had the plane waiting. (laughs) Uh, Bill Hudnut was uh, in Congress at the time. I called his office, set it all up, and we didn't have Fred for four days, and the president resigned, and everything worked pretty well. (laughs) I guess we should say that we are recording this podcast on the 47th anniversary of Nixon's resignation. Yeah, we are. Racing and radio were so intertwined when I was a kid growing up. I was born in 67, so that... 70s era. Mm-hmm. Did you always want to combine the two? You mean television and radio? Meaning racing and radio. Oh. I, I want to be in radio, but I also want to cover the 500. I don't want to just do these other things. Well, when I, when I came back to the city after the Army, um, I, I knew that I wanted to do something with racing. But in, in a way, that might have been the hobby. Because I also really enjoyed it. You know, I ended up with that really great job on on, uh, WIBC. But I suddenly realized I've got two things that I can combine here. I actually may be able to do play-by-play of auto racing. And so they mixed together at about that time. They weren't early on part of the plan. Were you here doing radio for the Caritzis? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you mentioned Fred Heckman, and so I, well, I thought of that during in, your answer. In the book, "Hello, I'm Paul Page." It's race day in Indianapolis. Um, we talk about that because I was downtown uh, at right in front of the old FBI building on Pennsylvania, and waiting for a couple of my buddies to come out. I'm going to have lunch, and over the car radio comes just as they come out that this guy's walking down the street with a, a shotgun wired to some some other guy's head. So being there with the bureau, I. Followed it all all the way out to the far west side to the uh, the uh, homes that he he went into and and stayed for several days. So I was definitely part of it. Uh, I would lay up on the roof of our building uh, with the FBI snipers, so I could kind of know what was going on. I could hear their radio. We didn't have their frequency. So, <laughs> um, and then when he finally decides to come in and give it all up. He's going to make a statement. You know, that was cool. And he did. And then they take him down a side hallway off to my left. I said, I wonder what they're doing. So, you know, curiosity journalism. So I run around the building thinking maybe the patio 
door might be not shaded or something. And Caritza steps out the door with a shotgun. And I like digging in heels trying to get stopped. And he fired the shotgun into the air. Yeah. And it was an arrangement that they made, but they didn't certainly didn't tell me or I wouldn't have been there. (laughs) (laughs) We had Richard Hall on the podcast. Uh, Quite a guy. And it was a fascinating interview. He was very open, Hmm. said that the only time that he really got upset, besides being scared, was when they cheered Caritzis's acquittal at a Pacers game, which he was attending. That was that's not good. <laughs> no, no. He's, I, 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 I've I've been with him a couple times. He was in charge of a, a Sigma Chi national convention here, and we used to do these little demonstration races races at the speedway with four to six cars. And so he and I had to plan this little race for all the people that were in town. And super guy, really neat guy, and a terrific interview. I was I loved how forthcoming yeah, he was. You mentioned your military service. I wanted to ask you about that uh, in a few minutes, but we can just bring it up now because one of the things that comes through in your book and doing other research is that you went to 12 different schools as the basically an itinerant army brat. Yep, and I've got the uh, I've got the report cards mostly with D's uh, <laughs> to prove it. Uh, yeah, um, I was a military brat. Um, and then, of course, that was an era when you either were going to get drafted or needed to join. So I didn't really want to get drafted because when you were drafted in those days, you were put in a line company, you know, and so you're cannon fodder. So I didn't want that. So I, like our like our friend and uh, former podcast guest, uh, Sammy Davis. Oh, yeah. Sammy, I know he's my, a good friend. He's one of my best friends. Yeah, he's a great man. Yeah, he really is. He really is. Did you enjoy your time in the service? I think I did. <laughs> I, I, I have said to a number of people, you know, I think basic training was really fun. So I've obviously blanked a lot of stuff out. Um, I didn't I, have a lot of, where would you go? Uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. That's where I went. Yeah, did you? Yes, yes sir. And the, um, uh, at the time that was still the tank center, well, it was for some time after that, that's 65. Uh, and I loved when the tanks were on the night range, Falling to sleep to the boom of their cannons because it was almost like thunder. Yeah, we had the old World War II barracks. That's what we. Oh did. yeah, yeah. They, there were a bunch of them up when I went down there. When did you go in? January of eighty-seven. Okay, and they still had the old. Wow. Open Bay, World War II. Wow. We uh, we were in one of the new modern buildings, but they were actually when I was at Knox, they were burning down some of those old temporary structures because. Um, they might have gotten a flu bug or something in one of them, and their answer was just burn it down. Don't, don't try to clean it up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't. Yeah. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Your radio car- career started when, and when did you start at WIBC? Oh, I'm I'm really terrible on dates. Uh, my radio career essentially started in 1964, kind of because it. It wasn't a suddenly it's there. It was a kind of roll into it situation. Um, and the second half of that question. When did you start at WIBC? Um, twice. I started in 1965. Right. And then after I came back out of the Army, I uh, 19, 
1969 or 1970 at IBC. I've been doing a bunch of other stuff. Did you ever consider? I was a broadcast journalist in the, the military, Were in you? the army. Yeah, yeah I was at Din- Harrison. Yeah, Dinfos, yeah. I taught there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Did you ever think about doing that, like being a journalist in the military? To this day, I think about that. Um, uh, the more I get away from the military, but in the book, you'll find out I have a lot of military friends uh, and a lot of naval aviators. And I always enjoyed the regiment, at least. The regiment of the military was was good for me. So um, I, there was a point, actually, when I thought, I'll just stay in because I wasn't sure what was out there. And um, thankfully, I uh, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Your first race is in seventy-seven. Mm-hmm. As the my first as the as play the by play, play yes. by play, yes, um, it came about through some circumstances, mm-hmm. and um, we don't want to. Well, I mean, it's they're, they're facts. Of, they're facts of life. Uh, Sid Collins, who uh, originated the voice of the five hundred, and to me is the only voice of the five hundred, though. The network made you use the moniker. Um, he had some uh, some terrible problems with his uh, movement, and getting he, he thought he had a bad foot, and none of his doctors were giving him good information. He, he just wasn't satisfied with what they were saying, so he went to the Mayo Clinic uh, in first of April in seventy seven. And they told him that he had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease. And that devastated him. And he started talking suicide almost immediately. And there were like four of us that were his friends. And we were tried to watch him all the time. The psychiatrist said, if he starts talking about committing suicide and says, oh, I'm going to shoot myself, you say, oh, that'll be messy. Be matter of fact mm-hmm. and straight up. And nobody expected that he would do what he did, but the morning before the annual radio network breakfast was when you got together for the first time in May. Um, he decided he'd had enough and he hung himself. And two of us, when we arrived, we found him and it, that was pretty devastating in, for a number of reasons. I just lost an incredible friend, but also he had intended during the 77 race to call the first half and then turn it over to me. So none of that that happened and but Sid Sid was he's iconic. He was unbelievable what he pulled together. What he did was really not possible when he did it. What do you uh, mean? Well, just from a technical point of view, you know, we're in seriously in the vacuum tube days in nineteen fifty two and there are no satellites. And to be able to do it, you had to have an engineer with you at each of the turn positions who had his own panel. And then that had to come in on 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 uh, hardwire lines, and there aren't, aren't enough people to do it. There aren't enough announcers at WIBC, which way station, do it. So he reached out to the other stations. He said, "Come on, let's all do this together." And so it always was a collaboration um, of all of the stations in town, and until I'd say probably eighty three, eighty four, somewhere in there. That late. somebody was involved. Yeah, and not not as not as deliberate as Sid did it, but the remnants of that just kind of rolled on. If, if this guy was an engineer uh, and his buddy wanted to do it, then, yeah, okay, I'm done, but I'll tell him to use you. 
77 was a pivotal year for you in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the death of Sid Collins. You call your first race mm-hmm. as the lead announcer, the voice. Right. It's in probably one of the top five most famous races of yes. all time. Yeah. Because A.J. Foyt wins his fourth when yep. John Cox's engine dies or right. he has problems. What was that like calling Foyt's fourth? I, you can hear like Jim McKay from the ABC how mm-hmm. he called it, but for you, like I am, I am announcing history. Well, obviously that's there. That's always there. One of the things that all of us say is you can't make a mistake on the Indy 500 broadcast in radio when it was the exclusive, which was up until '87. Um, because you can't correct it. You have to wait a year to correct it. It's got to be dead right when you do it. And that, that's that's serious with me. So um, in that race, John Cock is challenging Foyt. Well, as, uh, again, a hobby pursuit, I am doing parts washing and stuff at Gordon John Cock's shop, George Bignotti Racing, Patrick Racing. And so I'm kind of, wow, man, the guy that I know pretty well, I win this 500. And I felt a little conflict there. And when finally the crankshaft broke and uh, he came off of four spewing oil and stuff, I did have a moment of, oh, but I, I realized <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Fortunately, turn four was talking at the time. When, when that, to me, of that race, the most iconic image and maybe I'm not going to speak for all fans, but I think for a lot of fans is the ride around the track with Tony Holman, who was clearly sick, ill and AJ Foyt. There's always the joke that Foyt was his favorite driver. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that moment? And did you get a chance to talk to either one of them about that moment? Uh, I've never talked to AJ about it. I did talk to Tony a little bit about it. And that was just, AJ was part of the family as far as Tony was concerned, Mr. Holman. Um, and he was just so happy. I mean, he was, he was very, very happy about that. And, um, there, there's a photograph. I didn't include it in the book, but there's a photograph from that day where one of our, our engineers, John Royer is down at the end of the pits. And so is Tony. It's during the race. And John offers them some headphones to listen to the radio network. And so there's this wonderful picture of, of Mr. Hallman with a broad grin on his face, enjoying the radio network. And that, that made it special for me. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Paul Page, the voice of the Indianapolis 500 and author of Hello, I'm Paul Page. It's race day in Indianapolis, which, of course, I can't say as well as you can. (laughs) It's race day in Indianapolis. Was part Perfect. Of the opening moniker. <laughs> Perfect. Is there a particular Hoosier leader or legend you admire? Well, this guy is a legend, uh, though he passed. My uh, my real mentor, while 
we're changing homes and homes, I always got to come back to Indianapolis during the summer and live with my great uncle, Harry Geisel, who was a major American League baseball umpire. He umpired three World Series and two All-Star games, and he was on the plate when Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth and all of the— Really? And, and at that time, the teams, the umpires, and everybody traveled by train. So there was always something going on, a party, you know, there, and Uncle Harry would tell me about all that. So that's a great, a great Hoosier for me right there. there but there, there's, so many, there's so many great people in this state. I mean, that's— Ask yourself that question. That's we, so hard. We ask I'm, tough questions, Paul. Yeah, Leaders wow. and Legends podcast. That one's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have so many friends who've been on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Voyles, right. Robin Miller, Mark Miles, Allison Melangdon, Donald Davidson. That's a pretty good Alan lineup. Jr., Johnny Rutherford. I mean, you've interacted with all those. And do you take something from, from all these people? from yeah. all these leaders and like, you know, what they've done for this city, the state and the sport. Yes. Every single one of those names, um, especially guys like Mark miles. I mean, I don't think anybody has a clue of how much he does behind the scenes and how he was getting things to happen. Even before Mr. Penske bought the place. Um, what I take from most of them, two things from Roger, if I call him today, he will call me back before the end of the day. That's the way he works. It's going to happen. It's not, nothing gets brushed aside. So I learned that. Um, and then from Mark, just watching him deal with other people and just the way he presented and things that he would say, he would say in such a wonderfully precise way that there wasn't really any question about what he was saying to you. Um, where a, a lot of people, you know, they're kind of vague, they dance around and everything. Mark, Mark is always to the point. To me, he's, I've said this on other podcasts, he is the most impressive person, certainly of his generation. I'll I've go with that. Met. Yeah, I'll go with that. And it's amazing. And it's no accident. I got to know Mark when I worked for Mayor Ballard. Mm-hmm. But the talent that is currently in charge of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Roger Penske, Mark Miles, Allison Melangdon, Doug Bowles. I can't think of another organization in this city or state that has that much incredibly brilliant and creative talent at the top. I think I'd reach out to say the nation, um, not just the city and state. They, it is an incredible group of people running it. And each of them has their own different personality and bring different elements to it. But fortunately, they all fold together very well. And uh, well, yeah, Penske, I don't think we would have gotten the television deal for next year that they got with NBC if it hadn't been for Roger, because the best impression was that that TV deal was going to go away. And it comes back with a much better deal than it was before. Roger, a lot like Mr. Holman was. And that Mr. Holman could pick up the phone and call somebody, call a CEO of some company and say, hey, I need you to do this. And it would get done. Um, Roger is capable of doing the same thing. He's got so many contacts, so many places that he can pick that phone up and call the, uh, the president of Chevrolet or whatever and say, I need you to send 20 cars down here. Okay. They're on the way. 
Yeah, I would want to be on the other side of the negotiating table from <laughs> with Roger either Penske. one of those two. <laughs> Maybe if Kissinger was on my side, but <laughs> that'd be about it. And then, and the other, the other one there, of course, is Doug Bowles, who is the absolutely perfect promoter. Terrific. He loves racing. He has always loved racing, and uh, so he he's the right guy. And last year, with no people in the track. He walks across the street where a bunch of people were trying to watch the big screen from across the street, across 16th, and hung out with them. That's, I love that. And one of the things that I brought up in, in the podcast with, with Doug and, and Mark, and of course, you know, we'd love to have Mr. Pinsky on, even though I'd be nervous as hell, <laughs> to say the least. So if you're listening, Mr. Pinsky, come intimidate me on the Leaders and Legends <laughs> podcast, is how I have a son who's 20. He's a race fan mm-hmm. like crazy, especially the 500. They have done such a good job of reigniting among young people a love of the tradition, the events, and then the race itself, which quite frankly has delivered in spades multiple years. The racing, especially at the end, is just phenomenal. Yeah. It had this, this race with Elio winning was like one, one lap he followed, followed down the front stretch and they are weaving back and forth. It's like two jet fighters going after one another. Uh, and, of course, an incredibly popular win as well. I was uh, I wait, was waiting for Elio to get down off the uh, podium where they were doing pictures for like an hour. And he came down and he still had the, um, the flowers, the wreath on. And he sees me and he comes right over and gives me a big hug. Now, we'd, we'd spent some time together. I've got another photograph from another win of the same thing. He, oh, Paul. You know. <laughs> but that was, that, that was super. That was really super. I want to ask you several questions about individual races. But before we do that, it would be remiss of me not to ask uh, the final question about 1977. And the helicopter crash you were in, which I remember as a kid. I remember it. Do you really? I absolutely remember it. And I also remember when uh, Francis Gary Powers died mm-hmm. in his in the U2. Yeah. yeah. The U2 pilot. Yeah. But yeah. That was in Chicago, I think, wasn't it? I can't remember. I but can't I just, either. I just I, remember that it was such big news. Yeah, I can't. shouldn't have ventured out there. That was uh, a moment in your life like that where it could end and instead you flourished afterward. Mentally, without getting into too much maudlinness of detail, uh, you write about it in the book. Right. Uh, there's a picture of the helicopter in the book. Yeah, it's So cool. you address it. Um, that day, how did it spur you on to such great success afterward? Well, it was a near-death experience. Um, everybody kind of downplayed, uh, for PR reasons, how bad it really was. Uh, in my case, my left uh, leg and ankle were up alongside my knee when I finally got to look at it and big compound fracture. And it was really, it was bad. Uh, and it was touch and go for you know, a couple hours until, in my case, they got the uh, the orthopedic surgeon, Bob Bruckman, in to take over. And it was the days we, they don't, they didn't have what they have today, all the fixtures and plates and all sure. that. And so he put me back together and... Um, that started me thinking about, am I really doing with this life what I should be doing? Because uh, I'd been kind of on cruise control. I, yeah, I'd gotten, I've, I, I hit that height. I, I, I kind of finished up. I did the Indy 500. <laughs> and so it really got me thinking about 
relationships with people and charities and things that I just ought to go out and find. I wasn't really curious for that year. And suddenly I realized you need to start getting involved in everything you can. Grab the moment. And that's where I went. It seemed to me in reading about it, a lot of the details I didn't remember. You know, Speedway was in the news a lot for quite a few years, whether it was Burger Chef right. or, yeah. oh, or, you're right. or, yes. or the bomber, Brett Kimberlin. Yeah. Uh, is it how close you came to hitting the high school, which would have changed the entire narrative of the story? Was there a particular moment as we move on that was most frightening to you? No. Um, what happened was a gear in the pinion shaft at the base of the main rotor, the, the gear that helped connected the main rotor to the engine disintegrated. And so we're flying and we hear this big crack and we're over the speedway, the north end of the speedway at the time. And pilot and I looked at each other and then another crack. And then I realized I'm looking at the tip of the rotor blade and it's not moving. So, you know, that famed auto rotation we don't have any of it. In fact, I think in the book, I say we were a homesick brick. Yes. And, right. and, but the serious side of that, that I, I didn't get that much into was that I'm looking at a high school and I really thought we were going to hit on top of it. Um, I was not thinking about death or anything. I was just, we're, you know, as a matter of fact, we're going down and we might hit that school. Luck had it that the helicopter traveled just beyond that. And we hit on the, on the, uh, the track of the football field. So we missed the school and it was a pretty good crash. in the fact that there's a fire station about 200 yards away who saw it and came over right away. But that's, I never particularly reacted. Um, if this is what you're asking with it, with any fear, I, I wasn't af afraid of anything. It, it, all of that surgeries and everything, just matter of fact is you're going one thing to the other, to the other. And the next time you went up, did you feel somewhat in a way like the race car driver who gets back in the car in the cockpit after some horrible crash? I, I, I think you could make that analogy. My, I just wanted to get back in a helicopter. I just wanted to get back flying. I'm a, I'm a terrible aviation nut. And I think my family thought, well, he's not going to get in an aircraft anymore. And I think it was three months later, I was back in the WIBC helicopter as a guest. And uh, you name uh, an aircraft, and I've probably flown in it or, you know, I, I really enjoy it or flown it. So, yeah. That is very race car driver-ish. <laughs> Maybe. What's your favorite race movie? Um, Turbo. Since I'm in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's called a layup. Yeah, no. Um, actually, um, Le Mans is the best film I've ever seen done on racing. Uh, and second would be Grand Prix with Jim Garner. Who was a huge 500 fan. Yeah. Huge. Oh, he he was drove the pace car several times. He did. And he'd hang out in the old timers room and... That's when the whole motel was there, and there was a swimming pool at the motel. So quite often, after twilight, we'd all go over and, and sit around the pool. And because everybody that was anybody in racing was staying in that motel. And you'd see Jim coming back, just walking. He got a bag of McDonald's in his hand, heading for his room. You know, he was just, he was plain as dirt. He was just a good man. And that was actually a 
operated by Jim Dora Sr. And I know, yes, you, know, yes, I know you know the correct. Dora family. Yep. Jim Dora Jr. hired me for my first job out of the Army in March mm-hmm. of 1987 as a front desk clerk. And now I sit on the board of directors of their company. That's cool. Isn't that cool? It, it's a nice journey. It's a terrific family. And Jim Dora Sr.'s contributions to Indianapolis are legendary. I, I don't know if it's clear on the pictures that are in the book, but Jim Dora and C.B. Smith, right. uh, his partner, sponsored me in my Formula Ford race car. I didn't know and that. I so, don't know if Jim Dora Jr. knows that. I uh, have to tell him. It was carrying a Holiday Inn on it. And uh, in fact, C.B. bought, then they didn't really exist, a really nice motor coach, a GMC motor coach, so he could go around to the races. And so, it, yeah, and Jim, well, they both were they were they were nice people. Before we get into some other parts of your career and and some favorite races and it's kind of some rapid fire questions I want to ask you. This is something I've asked other guests mm-hmm. and that is when was your pinch yourself moment? I'm just Paul Page, I'm an army brat and I went to all these schools and I went in the army and I've done all this thing and I've paid my dues and now I'm doing this and I can't believe well, it. Well, it's obvious obvious to me that it had to be 77 just before I'm ready to go on air uh, as the host play-by-play of the race. Um, I looked out and a giant crowd were in the old uh, master control tower up on the fifth level. And that was a that was a pinch yourself moment because I, you know, I cannot believe I'm standing here. Um, it, it, all of the history from 1960 and everything just kind of caved in on me. And then my producer, I think, probably sensed that I was getting a little too serious. Jack Morrow <laughs> was our producer. He walks over to me and it, we got maybe a minute or less to go. And he shakes my hand and he holds onto my hand and he looks me right in the eye and he says, Paul. There are over 50 million listeners out there. Do not screw this up. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that set the tone to be able to come on the air. How big of a jump was it for you personally? And then maybe in terms of, of technology, if that's the right word, when you started being the voice for ABC and that, that level of coverage? Well, I had that my first network job was actually with NBC. Um, the executive producer there, a guy named Don Olmeyer, who had done a, a lot of the Olympic events, uh, just loved auto racing. Now, he's in New York. He, he's he's doing everything he can to convince everybody else uh, whose whose car is a yellow cab. that <laughs> This is interesting. And um, so he hired me when cart was going to start. And I did the first cart race, and but these, some of them were live, most of them were tape. Uh, so I did get a lot of training at NBC before making the move over uh, to ABC. Fortunately, there was enough live in there, uh, and I'd, I'd been both an analyst and a host, that I, I kind of had my feet under me when, when ABC finally called in late of 87. Did you know that call was coming? Did you have any idea? No, that it was- no, I didn't have any idea at all. And in fact, when I when I did realize I had to do that, I mean, there, there was no choice. And and the the family said, we kind of need help there, so that'd be a good thing to do. I'm sure that they helped engineer it. But um, the 
that that trend that transition itself not difficult, but NBC never had an event on race day, so I could do NBC mm-hmm. and then I could do the five hundred. I remember one year actually getting on a plane the next morning. If the race had gone a second day, this might have been an issue, and flying to Budapest. Uh, to do a bunch of different events in Hungary. Uh, so that, those were fun days when you did a lot of different stuff. And for part of that, there was Johnny Rutherford with me, and then later Bobby Unzer. We were all at NBC before Bobby and I went over to ABC. 1977, your radio gig, you announce A.J. Foyt's fourth victory. Yep. 1987, your television gig, you announce... Allen's or seniors fourth victory after I think Andretti Mario Andretti led 185 yeah. oh, he dominated that race and then so did you kind of laugh at the symmetry between the two yeah there's some karma there I did I, I absolutely did it uh and, and there are other similar situations for me I might might be on a more personal level but yeah you look and say whoa this happened 10 years ago <laughs> Exactly this way and pretty much here. Exactly. What I was thinking when I was doing the research was not only that particular uh, coincidence, Mm -hmm. but the fact that Mario wrote the intro, the forward for your book. Was it, which means, I mean, obviously that there's a close connection there. Yeah, he was a bud. Was it? Of course, you know, we'd love to have Mr. Andretti on the Leaders and Legends podcast too, just FYI. Anyway... (laughs) Is it hard not to be a fan or does the professionalism take over? 1987, you're announcing the race. Mario, I'm looking at my notes. Mario led 170 laps mm-hmm. and lost. Were you announcing it go- with something in your heart going, I simply cannot believe it? No, by then I'd, I'd learned to tune that part out, uh, you know, after especially 77. And, and, it, and it really was 77. I realized you, I, I've got to be one foot away from the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, I, from then on, it was totally professional and what I did in the booth, not necessarily what I do out on the track and around and hanging with my friends. Is there a type of racing you have not covered? Mm, That's a great question. I've covered supercross. I've covered world championship bicycles. I've covered MotoGP. I've covered sprint cars. I've covered midgets. I've covered Formula One. I've covered uh, NHRA drag racing. I've covered uh, um, the the stock cars in several different iterations. And, of course, the Indy cars in their current iteration. Oh, yeah, there's a few of them out there. I probably can think of more. But, but, you know, that's... that's, (laughs) That's just the fun times. In, in the book, in the back, there's a list of like everything that I did, and one of them being the Arcata to Ferndale Kinetic Sculpture Race. Which Say that again, please. The Arcata, California, <laughs> to Ferndale Kinetic Sculpture Race. What is I don't even want to go into it. It, <laughs> it never made the air. But it was it was it was fun to be there, and then of course the Nathan's hot dog eating. I was contest. just getting ready to say that you made the Nathan's hot dog eating contest sound like the Mears John Cock <laughs> duel in nineteen eighty two. What was it like covering that? I mean, were you just kind of like, I can't believe I'm doing this? I when they first called me and and told me that they'd like me to do it, 
I, I didn't quite understand really what they were saying, I, you know, to everything. Oh, yeah, sure. Because you really had to do it. Sure. You're not going to say no. Um, and it took me a, about two hours to call back through the right people to say, what, what is this? <laughs> what are we doing? Um, and it, it, it turned about to be so much fun. And, you know, everything that you do in that is tongue in cheek. In fact, I remember my very first show, the, um, the Shea Brothers, Rick, who was, was in the booth with me, and George, who was the guy with the huckster hat and, you know, the big, what we call the sermon opening. Um, they, they came up with, to start, they shouted, gentlemen, start your enzymes. <laughs> so, and they were fun. And it was, it, it, it was good in a number of ways, as many of these events are. And I don't want to go too long on this, but the, you're, in, you're in New York and hit Broadway. I mean, there's, there's no preparation on a show like that. Uh, we show up at 10 o'clock in the morning of the event and do it. Um, so you're in New York and you're on Broadway and you can you know, hit a few shows. And then the really great thing about it, it's always on the 4th of July. Um, so I would book a flight leaving JFK at about 8.30, or at least past 8. And the reason I did that was all the way home, you're looking down on all these fireworks displays across mm-hmm. the country. And I just, uh, those, those are the little moments that are also fun. Leads me to another question I was going to ask a little bit, but I'll ask it now since you brought up a national holiday. How much more special is the 500 because it's Memorial Day weekend? Well, to me, coming from both the military background, which I think makes you patriotic automatically, um, Memorial Day is always so significant. Um, my uh, Both my parents are buried in Arlington, and... Um, I go out and put flowers on on tombstones and out at Crown Hill. Uh, it's just, it, it, and it's appropriate too because of the the courage shown by your everyday sh- soldier and the courage shown by the drivers in the five hundred. So that was a nice connection. I don't know how strong it is, but it's one I believe in. My son, who did two tours in Afghanistan, I mm. took him to a 500 once. And I said, you may not enjoy the race or racing. It was when um, Helio, I think, won his second. Mm-hmm. And um, he just couldn't believe the display of patriotism. Mm. Even though his mother was was career military. He's like, I didn't expect it. I go, that's the heart of the race. Yeah. Um it always that part's that stops me. Taps totally stops me. Uh in fact if I had to come back on the air after tax taps, it would I wouldn't be really good for a little while. Um the whole military presentation, the Armed Forces Day, that connection that Carl Fisher originally put together, uh one of the founders of the Speedway, but that whole thing it was it was bright as a business decision because he got a three day weekend, but he was more, I believe, into the fact that that was the most significant holiday of the year, and here it is. It's the opening to summer, and we're honoring all of those troops. And you know, we've passed through how many wars since the opening of the Speedway? Fast forward to we talked a lot about seventies and eighties, but in the nineties there was a split. 
Mm-hmm. It was rancorous and it was debilitating. How did you handle that as a journalist and a fan of of the race and racing? There was a lot of pressure on me from both sides. Um, the network made the decision for the first year that I should do both IndyCar and CART. And that was an impossible situation just on a personal level. People would come up to you and, you know, why do you favor the other guy? And then that group would come up and say, why do you favor that guy? Um, my approach to it, and I said it to many people when they tried to slide some sort of political message into it. I said, look, I'm here to cover a race. Now, if you can figure out how to get that message on the track during the race, I'll cover it. But I don't, I really don't care. Well, I cared a lot because it was hurting a lot of people. It really hurt a good many people. But my job was either one. I was, my job's to make it interesting and fun. So that's what I tried to do. In the mid 90s, there was another uh, big event Mm -hmm. uh, at the Speedway, and that was the inaugural Brickyard 400. Mm -hmm. What was your take on them wanting to do a NASCAR race? I was so against it. I, I was a Mr. Tony Holman guy. Um, this is for one race a year. This place was built for that. Carl Fisher said as much when he founded it. <laughs> so I was like, oh, no. And then when I got assigned to it, and I'd done some other uh, NASCAR events, and I really liked guys like Dale Earnhardt and, and that, the, the NASCAR guys of that time. Um, my producer, Bob Goodrich, even said to me as we were maybe a day or two before the race when we were coming in, he says, don't you get a totally different vibe coming in here now? It's, it's not special. And, well, it's a totally different vibe, and it's, it's special in that it's progress. Um, and I got assigned to uh, be the host and do some play, play-by-play on that, and I enjoyed that a lot. I'm in the booth with Benny Parsons and Bob Jenkins, mm-hmm. and we always just had a ball together. And uh, so it happened, and I, by the next year, kind of adjusted. And, yeah, okay, this, this belongs here. This is a good thing. I had actually, come to think of it, when Mr. Holman was still alive, we'd go to these little meetings where he'd talk over what he's going to do with the Speedway. You know, when, you know, we're going to put more seats in here, whatever it is. And one year he asked for suggestions, and I'm sitting next to Tom Carnegie. And I, I'm the guy who should never have spoken up that early on in a meeting. Um, but I said, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we had the 500-mile race on Memorial Weekend and a stock car race on the 4th of July, and then some other major event, maybe even a Formula One, on Labor Day. Everybody at the table just kind of gave me that dead-eyed look. <laughs> and when they started talking again, Carnegie leans over and says, that was really stupid. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that time, that was the rule. We didn't want anything else out there. And so they, they didn't fire me over that one, though. They eventually listened to you somewhat, <laughs> apparently. Uh, I wanted to ask you about some uh, broadcast slash 500 legends. Mm-hmm. And I might as well not bury the lead and ask you about Tom Carnegie. Oh. Tom Carnegie was magic. Tom Carnegie, you know, he goes back into post-World War II. 
his involvement at the Speedway, and there is no one who will ever do PA the way Tom did it. And it came off so casually, but Tom was really very studied at it. I would sit and talk to Tom about different things I'm doing and things that he's doing, and he started letting me in on some of his little secrets. Uh, Like he he told me one time, um, you know what I do if the race is getting kind of boring, I'll just suddenly say, where's Mario? (laughs) (laughs) And the crowd will be on their feet and everything. I know Mario's on the back stretch, but it was fun. (laughs) And it's it's, it's at 64 or 67 with Foyt. Where is he? Where is he? That that was, and you know, the, the way he delivered, he, he was, he, he taught me a lesson in that less is more. Um, that I carried on to a number of races, including uh, Unzer Jr. and Fittipaldi, where I just, for the last 10 laps, gave the lap number. You know, there's six miles to go, that kind of stuff. Um, but he was a master at it. Uh, he'd lay out these lines, you know, just as simple as it's a new track record. And then he shut up and let the moment live. And that's what I think I learned most from Tom, was to allow that to happen. Plus, he had a beautiful voice. Oh, what a great His baritone. voice huh? is just so... It's like John Facenda. Yeah. The yeah. NFL film. There you go. Announcer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim McKay. Okay. Did you get to talk to him? Did you get to be friends not, with him? Not all that much. Um, when television gets to the track, even in the Jim McKay days, um, you're pretty much immersed. Uh, your chance of going out and just sitting down and talking with somebody is pretty slim. But I, I sat with him a couple of times on the pit wall when they were waiting to do a take or something during practice. And he was fascinating. Uh, and he was, he was a storyteller, which I tried to emulate. And, I, you know, I don't want to sit there and hear statistics at me. Um, you know, this guy did this on this lap four years ago. Da, 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 da. No, I want, I want to know who that guy is. And McKay was a master at that. Uh, interesting, his son is Sean McManus. Mm-hmm. Sean McManus was a spotter for me at the first Caesars Palace Grand Prix because he worked at NBC. And by the way, my, my analyst on that show was Roger Penske. Um, well, Sean McManus today is the executive producer for CBS News and Sports. Mm-hmm. And for a while, he was actually uh, my agent. So, you know, watch him come through. And, and, and he was adopted, so you talk about lucky. But uh, McKay, yeah, he was a master. He knew what he was doing. I don't think we have shows, maybe the Indy Race, maybe, maybe the Kentucky Derby, but we don't have shows that, that really would fit McKay anymore. Um, just because, they're again, they're not into that wonderful long on-camera narrative that he was so good at. And the wide world of sports model. Because yeah. you, you did announcing for Sports World, NBC mm-hmm. Sports right. World. And wide world of sports, right. WWOS. I actually, for a while, was in that open where Eddie the Eagle is flipping off of the ski jump. Um, Vinko. We had, a, uh, uh, we had a shot of somebody. It's a, it's a from the wall shot of a race car hitting the wall. And so I had to record, wow. <laughs> so I was in there for a bit. <laughs> the, the person you allude to very quickly in your book is Eddie Sachs. Mm-hmm. Called him your hero. Yep. 
Absolutely was. Um, he was the focus of my first race for me because he was such a, a, a huge figure and huge publicly. <clears throat> so in 1960, he's just a natural person to latch on to from my point of view. Um, and I loved his annex. And, and even though I'm just arriving and racing for the first time, I know a lot about him and, and that he's just he's a fun guy. Fun guy that apparently knew absolutely nothing about racing, but he was there. Um, he was like John Cox the same way. They don't. They, you ask him what that car is doing, and they don't have a clue. <laughs> but I'll drive it really fast for you. So Eddie really impressed me. And so after that first race in 1960, I wrote him a letter, and I said that uh, I I was really impressed with him. I was a fan and. Um, what advice might he offer me if, if I wanted to get in racing? And he wrote me back. And he wrote me back on this uh, Champion 100 Mile an Hour Club stationery, which was, that was a big deal to be a member of that then. Mm. And essentially, he told me that uh, if, you, if you do what you have a passion for, then you'll always succeed at it. But, I, and I didn't put this in the book. He also said, yeah, but you really have to be fun, too. You have to enjoy it. So I'm right over in that wall there is my Eddie Sachs Award, which was a pretty tearful moment getting there. And you were there in 64? Yes, yes. When um, he perished along with Dave McDonald. Yeah. Um, and which is, I hate to say, one of the worst crashes. Oh, it was horrible. I don't, I don't think there has been one. I, I wasn't present, obviously, for a good many, but of the ones that I've seen, which start in the 60, and that I've also seen elsewhere, that, that without a doubt, just totally blew me. I just was, I was sitting in first turn with my family, and um, the field came rushing past, and we're waiting for him to come out of four, you know, that wonderful anticipation, and I could see Jimmy Clark coming out of four. Um, I could see that far in those days, uh, but, and then all of a sudden right behind him, this giant bloom of fire and then black smoke and place went quiet and Clark finished that back to the fourth turn and stopped the field. Um, everybody knew you weren't going to drive forward in that, but he, he got out of the car and was holding his hands up to the other guys coming down. Uh, yellow, of course, was already out, if not the red. Uh, but I think the red only showed at that time on the, at the start finish line. So and it was we, horrible. I mean, it just, um, Dave McDonald was a great California kid, wonderful sports car driver, just coming up in the ranks, driving for Mickey Thompson. And he lost it coming off the fourth turn at the conclusion of the first lap, which is one of your great trivia questions, by the way. What lap did that occur on? It occurred on lap two because Clark was already across the line. It's the leader lap that you count. So if you want to win a contest, there you go. I'm calling that's, Donald Davidson when I yeah, win. That's, that's a little comic relief because this situation is. Um, well, we had a com we had our podcast interview with Johnny Rutherford, and he told the oh, story yeah. how I had read this, but he told he retold it. Sax always carried a lemon around lemon on around his neck yeah. to snack on to keep hydrated or whatever and it ended up in rutherford's engine block or yeah well and the trumpets from his fuel injectors also ended up on jr's car and jr he was just so lucky he was right behind 
And when Eddie hit, it lifted the back end of his car way up in the air, and Rutherford believes he passed under it, which is pretty likely, pretty likely. So they, you know, it was a long wait. The, the crowd was just dead quiet. And, uh, that gave us too much time to think about what we just saw. And, and Watching a documentary in Jim Philippi, a famous yeah. Indianapolis Motor Speedway icon, said, "That's where you just look away. Mm-hmm. You just, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, you run in, especially if you're doing this professionally, there's things that you look at and you say, mm-mm. Dale Earnhardt's crash at Daytona. Everybody was, oh, it's just a little crash. Yeah. But the turning moment in that crash, I was like, that's really bad. And it turned out to be really bad. Who had the worst temper? AJ Foyt <laughs> or Bobby Knight? <laughs> um, AJ, by far. And I've interviewed Bobby Knight, so... <laughs> I know both of them. No, AJ, hands down, he's the best temper in the world. (laughs) That sounds like a compliment. I'm sorry? That sounds like you're giving him a compliment. Yeah, in a way I am. Yeah, I mean, look at what his temper led to in terms of scenic moments. I mean, grabbing a laptop and flinging it across the pit lane. and Smack uh, the Aaron Leindyke. And yeah, it just, uh, AJ gets really angry. And then a little later, you go back up to him and says, it's fine. Everything's good. So, but yeah, as far as coming off as a firecracker, he, he really explodes pretty quick. Robin Miller gave the same answer, by the way. Mm. I asked oh, him the he? same question and he gave the same answer. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, I'm biased, of course, because our family was all uh, Foyt fans. My mm-hmm. uncle was a pit crewman for Foyt in 61 when he won his first uh, 500. Uh, I think Foyt is the, in my opinion, and I want you to push back on this or give yours. Foyt is the greatest legend in the history of the 500. But it would be far off the mark to say that Allen's are senior, who's led the most laps, or Rick Mears, who has the most poles, and they each have four victories, that either one of them had the greatest career on the two-and-a-half-mile oval, leaving Elio aside for just one second. So you're really asking between Rick and Al? I'm asking you, I guess my question is, if I contended that A.J. Foyt was the greatest legend, would you say, yeah, but, or yeah, or no? I would say if you contend he was the greatest legend, absolutely. Now, I'm drawing a, a distinction there. Mm-hmm. Is he the greatest driver at that track? No. He won four races that he shouldn't have, and he lost four races that he should have won. So... um as a legend, yeah, absolutely. Best driver, no. Rick Mears, far, far. Rick Mears was better than all of them. It seemed like every year, Mears either won it or was on the pole or was on the front row for like yeah. 15, 20 years in a row. And here's a guy that really wanted to be a motorcycle racer, and his parents wouldn't allow it, so he went into Indy cars. Um, he's just as calm and nice as you can be. Um He's enjoyable to be around. He sees so much stuff. I went out to their place in Bakersfield once, and Rick's laying on a couch. And his brother Roger was there, and Rick's just got his eyes open. He's laying on a couch. He'd been there for an hour or so. And his brother said he's just visualizing laps at the Speedway. He's (laughs) figuring out what he's going to do. And a neat human being. I really like Rick. How was it when you would go places and... 
bring up the 500, how, how people reacted to it or, or when you would talk to people after their first Indianapolis 500 as either a driver or a fan Mm-hmm. And just how they talked about it. I used to work for Jim Dora's hotel, the Holiday mm-hmm. Inn Airport, and in the nineties, and people would come stay there. Pennzoil was actually the right. company that right. usually had a lot of people there. And you would talk to the people as they're checking in and mm-hmm. say, you know, is this your first five hundred? You know, and and for the people who said yes, I would always say, I'll be here Sunday night. Just <laughs> let me know. Let me know. That's good. And they're it was they're wide eyed, like they. They couldn't believe what they had experienced. Mm-hmm. Did you get that a lot when you talked yeah. to? Yeah, and and in fact, uh, part of what I would use I used to do when when qualifying was a big deal, and I had a guest, I like keep them away from. Yeah, you know, take them through a tunnel, and then maybe up to the ABC compound, or, or it would have been radio compound in those days, uh, radio office. Um, and then I'd wait, and I'd walk them out. And kind of suddenly expose what was then an enormous crowd, and they're they're all like, "Oh, I don't believe it." So um, there's another side to that, and I I touch it on touch on it in the book, though my co-author didn't want to touch it as deeply as I did. Um, it's truly a global event. I mean, I'm in Moscow, and I'm introduced as Indianapolis guy. And four or five of them, oh, Indianapolis, you know, that happened everywhere in the world. I was actually in um, in a place in northern Australia, a little uh, by-the-sea, wonderful little village. And I'm talking to my wife. We're standing at a bus stop. And some guy says, that's Paul Page. <laughs> really? Here? <laughs> <laughs> so, my voice, I think, can get me in a lot of trouble sometimes, too. Favorite driver who never won the 500? Or you could say best driver who never won the 500. Either one. Um, that's. I've thought about this a couple different times, and I really can't come up with the, the straight-up answer. Um, I, I'm, I, really, I, I guess I really go back in history uh, and, and think that uh, probably Jimmy Bryan would, would fit that mold. Um, and modern day drivers, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to go way back to, to find that guy. Do you have somebody in mind? Michael Andretti would be the first name that came well, to mind. I mean, he had some very yeah, great races. That maybe maybe I should have said that and I, it didn't pop for me. I was looking a little further back. I guess we all rooted for Jim Herdebees every year. Oh yeah. Good old Herb. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. Most heartbreaking loss you called? Um, for me, it was it was actually Nigel Mansell. Um, he had the race totally won. He was such a precise guy. He was so good at what he did. Which year? Um, you, I told you I don't do dates. <laughs> I don't know my birthday. Don't ask me that. Um, and I, I can't dredge it up for you. But nevertheless, he's he's dominated the season. Um, he broke the lap record at Phoenix. He sits on the pole at Long Beach. I mean, everything's him. Um, and he had the Indianapolis 500 totally covered. And then he makes the tiniest of mistakes and just barely hits the wall, just scrapes it really. Day over. That that was because I, I guess, too, because I, I knew him personally and I knew mm. – 
this, despite the facade that he puts on as the, the great world champion, Lionheart, you know, and all that, um, that one I know really blasted him. He, he was down a long time about that. The 1982 race. We were looking at some of your memorabilia here in your house. Um, your favorite race? Favorite race because of, of radio and what we did with it, yeah. Um, you're talking uh, Mears Johncock. Yes, my very my very first 500. And if you go on YouTube and you watch the end of the race, all the comments are about, why are they showing Mears' wife? Exactly. And not, <laughs> and they're not showing the end of the race. <laughs> Actually, that's a question I asked when I went to ABC. Especially since in those days it was delay. And they had every chance. That, that lap probably wasn't cut that way because there was always a master a master cut. So, yeah. Um, that, uh, but your favorite race, your favorite ending, um, even more than 92 with Allens or Jr.? 92 was my favorite TV race by far. Um, not only because of the outcome and the excitement of the outcome, um, but the, the fact that I think as a broadcaster, I was very careful. I didn't talk too much. Uh, I was trying, I was actually feeling the same excitement that the crowd was. And so that would be my favorite TV. My favorite radio was Mears and Johncock. And what made it special, again, as a broadcaster, was we all had these old electronic watches. Um, and everybody had them. It was the fad that particular year. So I had one. And during the race, I'm using it. And I'm, I'm clocking intervals and everything, something you couldn't do with a mechanical stopwatch. Uh, very efficiently. So I realized about the 189th lap or so that the, the closure between John Cock and Mears puts Mears alongside John Cock at the white flag. So I got on our, on our circuit that I can talk to the announcers on and not be on the air. And I said, here's what's going to happen. And this is what we're watching for. We know Mears has a, a problem with a car, but he is still closing. And so we're going to focus on nothing but that. And we did. And that last lap, I think, was the finest lap ever called by the radio network. Uh, everybody was just so over it. And we were, I, th I think, not just that we liked it professionally and personally, but that it, it made all of us happy to, to see such an incredible thing happen in front of us. The the interval part that you mentioned was the most heart-pounding event I've ever witnessed personally. Because mm -hmm. everyone, you could tell that he was getting closer. Mears right. won the poll. That was the famous or infamous, perhaps, uh, race where Kevin... Should we call him Coogan as as Foyt did, or uh, no? I, he's, he's Kevin Coogan. Yeah, Kevin Coogan's car mysteriously creates this drama, this crash, knocks Andretti out. He's out, hits Foyt, but there's a the beautiful ending of how Mears right. reeling him in, and it's yeah. like we're gonna. He's is he gonna run out of laps, or is John Cat gonna run out of room? You um, you might want to go back to the crash at the start and look at the video a number of times. Um, you may not end up thinking that it was all Kevin Cogan. Um, of course, when Foyt went after him, that pretty much cemented it. It was, it was his fault no matter what happened, but that was, that was screwed. A lot of, and Andretti went after him, called him a child or we should, yeah. that's what happens when you have these children. A lot of things went on, including that that car 
was covered and never seen again. Um, and so did it have a mechanical? Why did they get that car out of, why didn't they have it in the garage so you could see it? Um, everybody else did, you know, you'd walk by at the end of the race and you'd see him. Uh, Mario was, uh, almost in the first row before the flag came out. So a lot of little things that happened at once there. Go back and look at the, take a look at the videotape. Let me know. What <laughs> <laughs> we have reached the point in the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Our guest today is Paul page voice of the Indianapolis 500 author of Hello, I'm, I'm Paul, Paul Page. And it's race day in Indianapolis. What was your first job? At, at all? At all. I was a busboy. I was a busboy at, uh, I was in eighth grade, and I was a busboy at the Officers Club at Fort Sheridan, Illinois. What was your first concert? Believe it or not, the Beatles. Here. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. Yeah, yeah. You know, Mark Miles, when we had him on, he wasn't at that concert, mm-hmm. but he lived in that neighborhood and the Beatles drove right down his street Yeah, oh, on yeah. the way to the concert. Well, the, well, they were at the motel at the track, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that, that was, I mean, that was the totally crazy day where the, mm-hmm. where the girls were just screaming all the time. But, and I'm sitting, I actually conned my way backstage and I can't hear them <laughs> because the crowd is so noisy. <laughs> but yeah, that was my first concert. I'm a big Moody Moody Blues fan, though, as a number of us are. You and Mr. Bill Benner? Mr. Benner, yeah. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Hello, I'm Paul Page. <laughs> um, actually, to get a really good sense of, of the race, uh, John Orovitz just finished a good book called The Indy Split. Um, it's... Um, it's it's well thought out and studied, and it, it talks about the split. I, I recommend that book because it does give you an understanding of that period, and it's so well rehearsed or so well researched. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really recommend that people go back and find that book, 500 Miles to Go by Al Blemker. Um, and at the same time, uh, Gentlemen Start Your Engines by Wilbur Shaw. Uh, those kind of set the tone for the golden era which to me is still going on as a golden era. I, everybody, Robin and I argued about this once, um, that the golden era was the roadsters when we were there early on. But then because he had done that, one year uh, I went around and I asked people, you know, what, what's golden era? And I'm asking kids and everything. Golden era is the one they're in. And yeah. so that, uh, there you go. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? You're really good. Um, one that I've, I've missed, uh, I would like to see the Grand Prix at Monte Carlo. And second to that, I've never been to the 24-hour of Le Mans either. So those are the, it's still racing. I'm gonna, it's going to be a racing event. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Who would that be? I I I guess it would be it would be Penske. Uh off the record in Canada. Um we're 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 tangential in a number of ways through his career and my career. Um but always 
friendly, always answering me, always courteous to me. You know, it was more than welcome to walk up in his trailer at any time. But I'd like to really just sit down with him and say, hey, what about 73? And hear him talk about it. Because, and I, I assume most people know this, but he is desperately in love with motorsports, always has been. Yeah, he's made a business out of it, but he he loves racing. And uh, I'd like to... I'd like to hear what he has to say about that. You mentioned 73. Why particularly 73? Uh, when they, that was there when they were first arriving at the track. When, what was it like? Roger was a race driver. First guy to put a sponsor on a race car. <laughs> Figures. Um, so I, I, I think when he first came with Mark Donahue, that would be the... I, yeah, I, I just start with that. I, it, I'd like to hear what he was thinking all the way through a lot of things. I'd like to know what he was thinking when his team did so poorly in Nashville. Because <laughs> there's a, a television shot of him. He's in the background walking down the track with not my favorite look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, three other very quick questions, and I promise to let you go. I really love Take how much time. time you've spent with us. Uh, I mentioned a name uh, a few minutes ago or a few minutes before we started the podcast, and I want to mention it again because he comes from one of the best East Side families there is. And he and my brother, Michael, were uh, truant together for the month mm -hmm. of May for mm -hmm. several years of high school. Good on him. And that is, that is Scott Remke. Oh, yeah. Scott, uh, I guess Scott's primarily, primary claim to fame on the record is a truck driver for when I first ran into him was with Ray Hall. But he's, he's so funny. And you ask him a question... You know, here he is. He's he's a member of the crew. He's, he's, but you ask him a question, and he will give you a super answer. Why is this happening to these cars? And he'd just go away. And, and he was it was always funny, always always good to see him coming down the road. Is there a 500 you wish you would have announced? Yeah, 1911. <laughs> I would have been a killer. <laughs> <laughs> is that when Ray Haroon invented the... That was pretty much mirror. it, yeah. Invented yeah. the rearview mirror. And the last question before we let you go, uh, who, who was the f your most favorite celebrity you saw at the Speedway? Oh, there you did it again, as I've seen a lot of celebrities there. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if this counts, so I'll give you two of them. Paul Newman certainly was very big when he arrived, and always was big the whole time he was there. Um. And then the other one would be Jim Gardner, of course, because he's just so friendly. Um, and then actually, um, Jaeger, the general Jaeger. who broke the uh, sound barrier, who used to also come hang around the old timers room. Uh, he's a celebrity and he was just awesome. <laughs> he just, you know, I have no idea how he figured that out, but he did, you know. So. David Letterman? Yeah, but Dave and I more on a personal level because we, Worked at uh, Channel 13. Right. And um, then he was working down on, on the little radio station on the south side. And then he made made history. And I went to the comedy club in L.A. when he was, was playing it. And we got a, a different kind of bond then. Um, we were now two pros who had essentially made it. Right. And so we kind of approached each other on that. 
My favorite thing with David Letterman was when I was with NBC, we're doing a lot of our voiceover work out of the Burbank studios. And that's where the Tonight Show was done. And it was during the transition time. So the the reserve sign said um, Johnny Carson. But parts in that space was Dave's red pickup truck. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Paul Page voice of the 500 and author of hello i'm paul page and it's race day in indianapolis thank you very much paul for your time Uh, thank you it was really good really fun thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com that's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.